Let's open our Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 32. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, as your family gathers together tonight in this place, and so many other brothers and sisters are gathering in other places and around the country, how grateful we are for a place, a country, where as yet we can still gather freely and worship freely. We thank you for that. We pray that your word would speak to our hearts and that as we learn the full counsel of God, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, help us, Lord, to understand your mind, your heart, and how to apply it to our lives that we might be better equipped to live in the world in which we do live and be the kind of witness and people you want us to be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things we notice about reading our Bibles is the way it is written. It is not written like a systematic theology. It doesn't begin by saying, this is the doctrine of God. Rather, it's a, it's a mixture of writing styles. We have narrative. We have poetry. We have parables, we have prophecy, and it's estimated that about one-fourth of the Bible is prophetic. We know that the first coming of Jesus Christ has come and gone. There are about 300 to 330 references, prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, but it's estimated that there are about 1,845 predictions that deal with the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's about one in every 30 verses in the Bible. So a lot of material is given in Scripture as to the second coming of Christ. And of course, the main subject of the Bible is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, he's foreshadowed and predicted, and in the New Testament, he is fulfilled. And it goes without saying, perhaps, that No person has ever impacted planet Earth as much as Jesus Christ has. No one has ever brought that kind of influence. I went on the web, and I just took one search engine, and I typed in the word, several words, and I typed in Jesus Christ. This was on the Alta Vista search engine. And uh, if you entered the word Jesus Christ, or just the word Christ, the single word, I came up with 9 million... 53,626 hits. You compare that with Bill Gates. If you enter his name, you'll come up with 596,384 hits. You enter the term Buddha, you'll come up with 821,741 hits. Uh, Madonna has the second highest with 1,295,000 hits. Muhammad only comes up with 417,710. Jesus Christ has impacted this globe and is spoken about in so many pieces of literature. Think about it. Three and a half years Jesus walked on this earth and he taught. He was here 33 and a half years, but three and a half years marks the beginning and end of his earthly ministry. And you think and compare that with some of the other greats who have come and gone. 
Plato taught for 40 years, Aristotle for 50, Socrates for another 40 years, and all of their combined influence and combined teaching and words don't hold a candle to the influence of Jesus Christ who taught, who ministered for three and a half years. And so he is the subject of prophecy. And what we have in chapters 32, 33, and 34 is this mix between near fulfillment and far fulfillment. Something that happens immediately and something that will happen futuristically. And and we go between uh, the immediate threat of Assyria, and that interfaces with the coming threat of the Great Tribulation period, and we have also the near fulfillment of after Shennacherib was defeated, sent back, and the coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom. But chapter 32 begins with a messianic reference. Behold, or check it out, or look at this. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. It's the promise of a coming king. The Messiah will come and reign. And it says princes will rule with justice. This is a reference to the messianic government in the future. Something Isaiah already touched on back in chapter 9. The government will be upon his shoulders, Isaiah predicted. And he said, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So here we are looking through the lens of chapter 32 on into the future, the messianic kingdom, the thousand year reign, the millennial kingdom, Christ reigning on earth in a perfect governmental system. Now, who's going to rule and reign with him? Well, we know, first of all, the apostles will. Jesus said that they would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And we also know we will. The saints will. The Bible says we're going to judge angels, something I'm sure the angels, at least at present, aren't too thrilled about, but they'll get used to it. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Virtually every form of government has been a failure. Whether it's an autocracy or a democracy, it's flawed. The only form of government that will work eternally is a theocracy. That's when Jesus Christ comes back... uh, not voted in, but just taking over. Over in the Knesset, they have what they call a no-confidence vote in Israel. That is, the prime minister and his cabinet is periodically reviewed and judged, and, and there's a vote that is given. And if it's a no-confidence vote, it's not good. And several no-confidence votes can bring him out of office. Here is a total confidence because of total aptitude as the Messiah takes over and reigns for a thousand years. To the church of Thyatira, Jesus promised the overcomers, I will give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. 
which answers a question that I've been asked on several occasions. What are we going to do in heaven? What are we going to do on the earth in the millennial reign of Christ? We have all of that time. Are we just going to be sitting around on a cloud playing harps and singing songs? Well, that'll be part of it. It'll be glorious. It'll be perfect. Certainly praise is part of it. But we're going to be busy serving. And we're going to be able to serve without any hindrance at all, any handicap at all, perfect service in a perfect environment, which I'm looking forward to. Because of all the service and things that we can do now on the earth, we're still limited. We're still flawed. There's things that we've done for the Lord and we think, I wish I could try it again, do it all over. Perfect service in a perfect environment, no handicaps, no weaknesses. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who will see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. During that time... During the millennium, there will be no spiritual blindness. There will be no spiritual deafness. Those who rule and reign with Christ, those leaders will provide protection and direction. Notice they will be like a rock, the prophet says, that is steady, dependable, perfect judicial administration, no hedging, no slipping. And then it also says they will be like a river, a rock and a river. Good description of a leader, steady, dependable, but adaptable and refreshing. Able to bless and instruct those in spiritual understanding. I've been reading a book lately I found at a Costco. And uh, it was on sale. Uh, It was a book about Ronald Reagan. It's called God and President Ronald Reagan. Well, the title sold it for me. I wanted to find out his relationship with the Lord. And it's been a very interesting book so far. One of the things that Reagan said one time, uh, he said, uh, well, no, he didn't say that. He did say that too. But he said, my own prayer, my own prayer is that I can perform the duties of this position so as to serve God. And... He also said, I have to realize that whatever I do has meaning only if I ask that it serves his purpose. Here's a man who was president of the United States, claimed to have a relationship with Christ and saw his life as something that he wanted lived in the will of God. I'll tell you what, imagine an entire leadership cabinet with that attitude. Solid, rooted in the will of God, serving Christ in a perfect environment for a thousand years. Can't wait. That's what we're going to look forward to. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness. His heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied. And he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also, the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity 
he shall stand. The millennium will be a no-spin zone. There will be perfect clarity as to what is right and what is wrong. The values of right and wrong will be clearly understood. Perfect discernment. Immoral athletes, petulant, spoiled rock stars will no longer be our heroes. We won't look up to that. We'll see a fool for a fool and a righteous person for being a righteous person. There will be absolute discernment, absolute clarity in terms of values. Back in the 5th century BC, there was a Greek philosopher by the name of Protagoras. And Protagoras was the guy who came up with that that famous philosophic saying, man is the measure of all things. Meaning that everything is relative and I myself as an individual determine what is right and what is wrong. There's no moral consensus. So that whatever I do... You may think it's wrong, but that's only relative to your own standard because man is the measure of all things. And that was the dominating Greek philosophy for generations. Now, our country wasn't founded on that. Originally, our country was founded on a moral consensus, a system of absolutes. Even if some of our founding fathers were simply deists, there was at least a moral consensus as to God, the Bible, and what is right and what is wrong. Even up to the 1950s, there was that moral consensus. George Gallup writes of that era that we shared a public faith in the nation. It was a faith that was linked to the people's everyday life through a set of common beliefs. However, today, in our modern culture, if you ask the question, what is right and what is wrong, there is no moral consensus. You say, well, it depends on who you are. It may be wrong for you, but for me it's right. It all depends on how one individually feels. What our parents and grandparents saw as black and white is today seen merely as shades of gray. It's a sliding standard, very individualistic. But what we're looking forward to is a time where moral relativism will be replaced with righteous absolutism. Everyone will know what is right and wrong, and there is still the need during the millennium to rule and reign with the rod of iron because not everyone will want to practice what is righteous. Those people who are leftovers from the tribulation uh, have children, the 144,000 who are there that have children, There will come an opportunity for them to decide. But there will be the need for a moral government to rule with a rod of iron and perfect justice. Now, go over to verse 9. Isaiah, since the kingdom hasn't come yet, he goes back now to matters at hand. Something that is local going on in Jerusalem and Judah at that time. But keep in mind, there is the near and the far. It still has application into the future into the tribulation. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a year and some days you will be troubled, you complacent women, for the vintage will fail. The gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, 
you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourselves bare, and gird sackcloth on your waists. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars, yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city. Isaiah is predicting a coming judgment that will result in depopulation. The cities will lose people because of the destruction. Deforestation. The land will become desolate. Yet, here's the, here's the real kicker. Nobody seems to care. There's a complacency among the land. Now, Isaiah addresses the women. I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. Let's finish up the verse, verse 14, because... The palaces will be forsaken. The bustling city will be deserted. The forts and towers will become lairs forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. The women are addressed, not the men. Now you might think, well, Isaiah, he's a male chauvinist. No, he's not. This is what I believe is going on. Typically, normally, Women are more sensitive than men. Especially in spiritual things. Any pastor will tell you when it comes to volunteerism in church, you often have women that outshine the men. Not always. Perhaps this is the blessed exception. I don't know. But I do know that typically when it comes to spiritual matters, a woman's sensitivity is heightened. However... As was then when the Assyrians were surrounding Jerusalem, and as will be in the last days, there will be a complacency among everyone, including the women as well as the men. Jesus predicted this. He described the last days by saying, Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, here's poor Isaiah pouring his heart out giving prophecy after prophecy, preaching, but not making any impression upon them because of the apathy that was in the land at that time. Women, both wives and mothers, can be such an influence for good, but they can also be an influence for evil. Solomon knew what that was about. He married lots of women. Lots and lots and lots of women. And the Bible says they turned his heart away from following the Lord after following idols. They made an impact. They made an influence on him. But they can also make an influence for good. I thank God that I have a godly mother, one who prays, one who reads her Bible, one who always encourages her children. Abraham Lincoln once said, no one is poor who has a godly mother. Because of their influence. Theodore Roosevelt, I agree with him. He said, the mother is the one supreme asset of national life. She is more important by far than the successful statesman, businessman, artist, or scientist. So here's Isaiah the prophet looking at that sensitive sector of the life in Judah, becoming apathetic, insensate, hardened, calloused which was indicative of the entire nation being at a very low state. Verse 15, it gets good. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted 
as a forest. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, after the judgments, into the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign, the earth will be completely renewed, rejuvenated, restored to its original ideal. And I believe not only physically, but there will be spiritually a revival like nothing else. I mean, imagine perfect king reigning in righteousness, perfect cabinet government ruling with a rod of iron. A utopia, a place of revival, a beautiful place of renewal. Now, right now, the Holy Spirit is moving on earth. He's moving in a powerful way. We have seen here a continuation of a movement from the 1960s called the Jesus Movement that has uh, set fires all around the earth. How grateful and thankful I am to have been a part of that. Those fires are burning brightly in other places. For instance, when I travel to India, I'm amazed. I'm amazed because when I go there, I expect to have a church service, and I'm thinking I'll speak for 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And I tried to pull that off one time. They wouldn't let me go. They said, oh, no, you're not going to go. (laughs) They wanted me to speak four hours. And here was their thinking. We have walked, they said, some of us for miles to get here. We love the Bible. We love the Word. We're not satisfied with just an hour. Keep going. You flew from all across the world to be with us, and we walked for hours to here, so keep going. From morning till afternoon. Or you go to places like Africa or China, where the hunger is incredible. But as wonderful as that is, there is coming a time when the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in incredible measure. In Romans 11, we read, blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Right now, God is pouring his spirit out largely, though not limited to, but largely upon Gentile nations. But when that full number of Gentiles has come in, and whatever number that is, only God knows, that last Gentile comes to faith in Christ, I believe at that moment, the rapture of the church will happen. Then the world will enter into a period known by Jeremiah as a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob's trouble. Israel will be persecuted, but 144,000 in a mass revival will take place. Then they will go into the kingdom age. We will rule and reign with a rod of iron in a perfect environment. Christ will reign geocentrically from Mount Zion, from Jerusalem, fulfilling all of the promises he made to Abraham and to David, and then even into the eternal state in heaven. The new Jerusalem has as its gates the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So massive spiritual renewal is slated for the future. Then, verse 16, justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in a fruitful field The work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings 
and in quiet resting places. Though hail comes down on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation, blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. Now, having announced the coming king, the perfect Messiah reigning in righteousness, and having announced the pouring out of the Spirit of God in verse 15, now the prophet tells us the result. The result that will be experienced in the people's lives. And what is that result? Peace. Peace. I've always found it interesting that the term Jerusalem literally means the possession of peace. Yerushalayim, the possession of peace. Now, if you know anything about Jerusalem, it's been anything but a peaceful city. And yet peace has been promised that city generation after generation. Pastor Chuck hooked me up with a really great internet news service called the Lakarev Report. It gives news snippets from the Middle East about every other day. And I was reading this week an article on that little uh, internet newspaper that stated, because I had read these reports, and I thought these reports seem to be daily almost. And they admitted almost daily, counterintelligence in Israel are discovering terrorist plots against the Jews. And because of the listening devices and the advanced technology, they're able to intercept the plans and stop them before they happen. They're doing everything they can to provide peace in an environment of absolute terrorism. And daily, they're finding these reports. The world has always wanted peace. I saw on the news not too long ago, it was a girl's birthday. She blew out her candles and they said, what is it you want? She said, I want world peace. Who doesn't? We've yearned for it for years. We don't have it. The city of Jerusalem destroyed so many times, rebuilt so many times, threatened more times, and still today we'll see peace. This week I got a phone call from, it was my old supervisor. I'm an FBI chaplain, I mentioned that. He's now in Washington, D.C. at headquarters working in counterterrorism. I said, hey, Doug, uh, you know where I moved to now. I'm here in Southern California. Is there anything I have to worry about? You, you know the inside scoop. He said, based on our reports, based upon what we know, you're fine. Then he paused. He said, what worries me is all of the things we don't know. <laughs> I said, well, thanks a lot. <laughs> In the last 3,000 some odd years of human history, Only 246 years have been years of peace. All the rest have been filled with warfare. It's peace that we've tried for but doesn't last. Somebody once said peace is that brief, glorious moment in history where everybody stands around reloading. (laughs) Now, there have been attempts for peace. You go back in history to the Roman times, the Pax Romana, it was called, the Roman peace, where Rome successfully ridded the Sea of Pirates and the streets of thieves, brought in a relative peace through an iron fist. It didn't last. 
Then there was the Pax Britannica. Great Britain was able to bring peace uh, through its um, governmental system for about 100, 150 years, but it didn't last. They were able to bring peace on the seas and world trade and a relative world order, but again, it didn't last. True story. A retired couple was sick and tired of all of the reports and threats about a possible nuclear war. This is back in 1980-81. And they were retiring, and they wanted to do a serious study of all of the inhabited places on planet Earth to find out which place would be least likely to ever see a war. They did a serious study. They wanted a place of ultimate security. They searched, they traveled, they studied, they traveled some more, and they came up with perfection. And they moved there in 1981, and they wrote their pastor a Christmas card in 1981 from their new paradise, the Falkland Islands. (laughs) Just two months later, a war broke out between Argentina and Great Britain over the Falkland Islands. You know your history, you know the story. Their paradise turned into a war zone. Notice that peace in our passage is linked to righteousness. It says righteousness will remain in the fruitful land. The work of righteousness will be peace. Without righteousness, there is no peace. And that's why we look for, the only hope is for the Prince of Peace to come and rule and reign. That's when there will be peace on earth. When he takes over the earth he created. Now chapter 33 of Isaiah. The prophet is, you might say, acting locally but thinking globally. He has his eye on an immediate situation. Plunderers, he calls them in verse 1. Pilferers, they are. That's the Assyrians. But... Though some of it has been fulfilled, some of the language extends also into the future to the final enemy of the last days, the Antichrist and his troops. Chapter 33 has everything to do with the land of Israel. It's it's geocentric. The, The emphasis of it, the primary importance of it is the land of Israel. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered. Like the high school bully. Unprovoked, he comes and picks on somebody else. Those were the Assyrians. And you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you, when you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. Let me tell you the background. Over in Second Kings chapter 18 and 19, We read that Sennacherib, that's the Assyrian guy, the Assyrian king, invaded the cities of Judah, came in and fought against the fortified cities of Judah, and he took them, overcame them. And in a series of campaigns, he took one city after another city. Hezekiah was the king at the time, and he knew that he better do something quick. What did he do? He sent a team, peacemakers, an envoy to go meet with his troops and pay them off. They took 300 talents of silver. 
and 30 talents of silver and gold and paid them off. Basically, they emptied the treasuries of Judah and stripped the temple bare of all of its treasures. And they paid them off, thinking, look, we're paying you off. Don't invade us. It didn't work. As soon as he took the money that he demanded, Sennacherib ordered his troops, a group of military uh, campaigners, to surround Jerusalem and demand a surrender. So they did. So here is Judah in a real mess. They've given all their money away, given all their treasury away, and now it didn't work. They surround the people of Judah, threaten them from before the walls of Judah. And in the nick of time, God steps in. We'll read about it in detail, probably next time. 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrians were destroyed by an angel of the Lord in one fell swoop. Absolutely annihilated. Some think that Isaiah... And I like to picture Isaiah uttering these words while standing on the wall overlooking the Assyrians with their military might. Can you picture the prophet? He's standing up on the wall and he says, Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered. And he speaks in faith the fact that God will step in and take care of his people. I love this. There's a lesson here. Always let God handle your revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Always let the Lord handle those who come against you. You know why? He'll do a better job than you ever could. Don't sweat it. Leave it in his hands. He's able to come against them, stand up for you, protect you. He knows what you're going through. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. There's also the law of the harvest here. Be not deceived, Galatians tells us. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And that's the idea here. Woe to you who plunder. You shall be plundered. You are sowing to the wind. You will reap the whirlwind of God's judgment. Now, the plunderer here, of course, is Sennacherib. That's the king of Assyria. The principle, though, extends all throughout history even into the future when the Antichrist will make and then break a covenant with Israel in the tribulation period. And here's the principle. God would be saying, you mess with my people, and I'm going to mess with you. God said concerning Israel, they are the apple of my eye. Whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. You know what that's like. If you're ever out in the wind and a piece of dust gets caught in your eye, if you wear contacts like I do, you don't like that. You're very protective of the apple of your eye. God says, I will protect. So whether it's Babylon or Rome or Nazi Germany or persecutors of God's people at present, whoever touches you is touching God. I've always loved the story of Saul of Tarsus coming against the people of God in Damascus. Uh, God get, gets his attention, he knocks him off his beast, and he's staring up in the noonday sun up in the air. And Jesus speaks to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting them? 
Why are you persecuting the Christians? Why are you persecuting me? I take it personally, Saul, when you mess with my people. Isn't that great to know? People mess with you? Give it over to God. You're his child. Let him handle the small stuff. Now, verse 2 is Isaiah's prayer. After delivering a message of woe to Assyria, Isaiah turns to prayer. Picture him up on the wall, perhaps. Oh, Lord, great, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. That is the people of Judah. Our salvation also in times of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered. So now through the eye of faith, Isaiah sees the answer in this verse to his prayer in the previous verse. And your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. As the running to and fro of locusts, he shall run upon them. The imagery is the swarm of a locust. Locusts come in and they devour a plant and they go from leaf to leaf and then plant to plant. And that's the idea here. So shall men swarm in and take the spoils of the fleeing Assyrian army, those who are left, and then all of the dead ones and all of their spoil they will take because 185,000 of them will be wiped out. The Lord, he says, verse 5, is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Look more closely at verse 5. I see in it a combination of worship and praise. Worship, you see, is what we do for who God is. Praise is for what God does. In verse 5, the Lord is exalted, he says. That's worship. But then he says, he has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. That's praising for what God does. When we praise the Lord, praise is more episodal. That is, one day may vary from one day to the next. God may do a wonderful thing for you one day, but he might not repeat that blessing for you the following day. And you respond in praise for what God has done. But worship is fixed. Because worship is based on not what God does for you, but who God is to you. And God is always Love. God is always good. God is always gracious. Because by his very nature, that's fixed. He always deserves worship. Whether we feel like it or not, the idea is he's worthy of worship. That's what the meaning of worship is. Worthspice is the old English word to denote value or worth to someone. And Isaiah has a combination here of, of praise and worship in the midst of being surrounded by the enemy. Hey, what do you do in your spiritual battles? You might say, well, I I freak out. That's what I do. (laughs) I get very upset and I make phone calls to all my friends. During World War II... When the Nazis were dropping bombs on the British, one British church got it right. They put up a sign in front of the church that says, If your knees knock, kneel on them. Imagine reading that and the bombs going off wherever you are. 
If your knees are knocking, kneel on them. That's the spirit of Isaiah. He's committing it to God. Lord, you're in charge. These are your people. You made a promise and a covenant. We stand by faith in the midst of the enemy. Years ago, when the Rwandan Civil War broke out, you remember the genocide of about a million or so people. Franklin Graham was crossing the border from Rwanda into Uganda. He was stopped at the border. It was a checkpoint. He noticed that at the checkpoint, not only were there a group of soldiers, but there was a pickup truck and a young Rwandan girl in the back of the pickup truck sitting in the back, clutching her blanket in the hot sun. And she was swaying back and forth and she was singing something that couldn't be understood because of the language barrier. This young girl, like so many other thousands of orphans, had watched with her own eyes her own family butchered to death by machetes. And there she was, all alone, destitute, no one on earth that she knew. Franklin Graham saw that young girl and asked the soldier, what is she singing? The soldier said, we don't know. She's singing in French. They found a French-speaking soldier, and he listened. And he came back and he said to Franklin in astonishment, she's saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Can you imagine singing that when your whole life has fallen apart? Everyone that you know on earth is gone. Your future looks so dim. To say, by faith, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. A statement of faith, not different from Isaiah, expressing his faith in God, though seemingly everything was threatened to be stripped. Verse 6, wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. Now keep that in mind, because in Isaiah chapter 36, you're going to hear the valiant ones crying outside the city walls. He's called the Rab Shakeh. He's the commander-in-chief of the armies of Shennacherib, who will be shouting out prideful taunts at the people of Jerusalem and Judah from the walls. That's the reference here. Their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. Now, what does that refer to? Remember I told you about those envoys that came and tried to pay off the armies of Assyria with talents of silver and gold, the treasuries, and they failed in their mission. That's their bitter weeping because of the failure of their mission. Their highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. That's a reference to the king, Sennacherib, who was pompous and prideful. One historian said of King Sennacherib that he was highly gifted as a military commander, but he was ruined by an arrogant self-consciousness which created a hatred everywhere and even alienated him from his own sons. Here's a prideful man lifting himself up against God's people. God is about to have his day with him. Here's the prophecy, and we'll read the history next time when we get into those chapters. 
Look in verse 9. The most scenic places around the land will be devastated. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Lebanon is beautiful. Today it houses Mount Hermon or Mount Hermon up in the north, about 10,000 feet high, perpetual snow on it. Beautiful landmark from all over northern Israel and Lebanon. Sharon is like a wilderness. Sharon is at the foot of Mount Carmel and goes down toward the south. It's that southern valley filled today with agriculture, flowers, forests. And Bashan, that's the high plains of the Transjordan on the eastern side. And Carmel, that's the mountain range where Nazareth is. It separates the two valleys, Sharon from Esdralon in the north. And although this sounds confusing, this little geography lesson, you come to Israel with us and we'll point it out to you. Almost in one fell swoop on a clear day, you can see most of these landmarks just by turning your head. Now I will rise, verse 10, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned in the fire. So here's God, patient. Long-suffering. But you get the picture? He's had enough. He rises up. It's sort of like a dad. He can only take so much from a rebellious group of kids. Now he gets up. And he moves toward them. Patient, long-suffering. But now in the nick of time, God defends his people against the Assyrians. Peter said that God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God has been so patient with planet Earth. It's the age of grace. His hand is extended to people all around the Earth for salvation. Through your witness, through radio, through evangelism. But there will come a day when that will cease and God will judge. Here, you who are afar off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners of Zion, or the sinners in Zion, are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Now notice that. The the hypocrites in Zion are afraid. You know, there's nothing like God rattling somebody's cage to get their attention. When God starts rattling the hypocrite's cage, they get fearful. I think of Ananias and Sapphira. You know the story in the New Testament. They pretended to be something they weren't. They were basically killed, slain, not in the Spirit, but slain by the Spirit. They were dead. They were taken up and moved out and then buried. And the Bible says fear came upon everyone who heard And no doubt when the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem saw the 185,000 dead Assyrians, their corpses lying around, they thought, ooh, we better make sure our lives are right before God. Our God is a consuming fire, a devouring fire. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, 
who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, of stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Now this uh, refers to the tribute that was paid the king of Assyria that failed. And one day God is saying that will all be a faded memory, that bad incident that you remember One day you will remember it no more. All of those painful past memories that you as a nation recall will be erased. It's sort of like the Old Testament equivalent of what it says in Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now look at verse 17 and put your name in it. Your eyes will see the king In his beauty. Can you imagine the emotion of seeing Jesus face to face for the first time? The king that was promised in chapter 32, your eyes will sing the king in his righteousness. That's that's what Moses longed for. Lord, show me your glory. At that moment, all of the past memories forgotten, no tears, no sorrow. Seeing Jesus face to face for eternity. By the way, a word concerning worship. I have had some of the greatest worship experiences at different times in my life. There have been times where it's almost like the presence of God is is palpable. You can feel it. The Lord was here. He was in our midst tonight. And because of that, we seek to recreate that so often. Oh, that was such a great worship experience. Let's try it again. I'm convinced that all of the worship experiences we have on earth, as great as they are, were never meant to satisfy us. They were meant, rather, to whet our appetite for this. You're never going to be satisfied till you see Jesus face to face. David said in Psalm 17, I will be satisfied when I awaken thy likeness. It's what John said. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's the moment of absolute perfection, absolute total satisfaction. Your eyes beholding the king. Verse 20 is millennial Jerusalem. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there, the majestic Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Every diplomat who's ever done any work with the Middle East knows that the sore spot in the Middle East negotiations is that city called Jerusalem. It seems to be that what the prophet Zechariah predicted, 
God said, I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. It's that stumbling stone. What do we do with Jerusalem? The pundits are asking. The negotiators are puzzling over. What do we do with it? How do we divide it? Who should we say it is? Hence, no peace. No solution has been found. One day, Jesus will come. And when he comes, written about in Revelation 19 and other places, Zechariah 12 and 14, in that passage it says, his foot will touch the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, creating a huge valley. And a river will flow from Jerusalem. And half of the waters, also described by Ezekiel in chapter 47, that waters, pure waters, purifying fountains will flow from the temple in Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean Sea. Recreated Jerusalem, a place of flowing waters in the presence of God. Psalm 46 declares, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I think this is a reference to that. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. In Messiah's reign, there will be freedom from all physical and all spiritual maladies. It's what we pray for. Every time we say the Our Father, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Here's a preview of that coming attraction. The earth will be restored to its original glory. Paradise will be regained. So, don't get the idea that you're going to get raptured and be in heaven forever and ever. You're coming back. You go, oh no, please, I don't want to come back. Yeah, you do. Because where do you see what God has in store? There were two Christians that were talking about this. And one said, I have a one-way ticket to heaven. The other one said, oh, you're going to miss a whole lot because I have a return ticket. I plan on going to be with the Lord in glory. Then I'm coming back to the earth and ruling and reign with him. And then comes the eternal state. So listen, you're going to be busy in eternity, having a boatload of fun, seeing all this take place. And then you see it, you go, oh, I remember that. We studied that Sunday night. There it is. The fountains flowing from Jerusalem, the throne of God. Let's finish up Isaiah 34. Now we shift from Israel and her specific enemies to the nations. It's not local here. It's it's the world that is in view, global in scope. What I love about this chapter is it contradicts the modern philosophy that we can improve our world. People have thought this for a long time. It's called social evolution, that by self-improvement, We're going to make a better world for tomorrow. I'm not saying don't try. I'm just saying ain't going to happen until Jesus comes. The slogan that says every day and in every way I'm getting better and better. I don't think so. (laughs) Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it. The world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. His fury is against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. 
He has given them over to the slaughter. And their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses. And the mountains shall be melted with their blood. What a picture. Rivulets of blood causing landslides in the mountains is, is the idea here. The host of heaven will be dissolved. I don't want to get too graphic here, but years ago I interned in radiology at San Bernardino County Medical Center. And I had, uh, I had quite a learning curve. I, I knew very little about um, the human body. I was studying it at the time in, in school. And uh, in that internship, we did all sorts of strange procedures, including autopsies and uh, uh, x-raying remains of corpses that were brought in for, for medical display. I will never forget the stench of rotting flesh. And what happened with 185,000 Assyrians, multiply that in the tribulation period. Just try to get a quick mental picture because we need to move on. Don't want to gross you out. But imagine a fourth of the earth being annihilated, then another third of the earth being destroyed, as Revelation 6 6 through 19 tells us in detail. And what that will be like for people upon the earth. Horrible. That's why Jesus said it's the worst time that's ever hit planet earth. Horrible. Devastating. And the host of heaven will be dissolved. The heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. And all their hosts shall fall down. As the leaf falls from the vine and its fruit falling from a fig tree. This is apocalyptic language. It's almost the same as in Revelation chapter 6. Let me read verse 13 and 14 out of Revelation 6 to you. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind and the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Did you know that God not only promises a new earth, but it promises a new heaven and new earth. The heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. They will be dissolved. And the recreation will be a new heavens and a new earth. For my sword, verse 5, shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, the fat of kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. That's the chief city in Edom. That's east of the country of Israel, east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. And a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them, and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood, their dust saturated with fatness. A word about Edom. Edom is a word that is used here as a representative word to signify all of the nations of the world. That's a literary device called a synecdoche. All that means is you take a specific word, something specific that means something general. Here's why. The nation of Edom has a long history with being a perpetual enemy of the Jewish nation. When Rebecca was pregnant, Isaac's wife, she had twins. 
She was having a hard labor. And she went and inquired of the Lord, why is my labor so difficult? The angel, uh, uh, the Lord said, well, there's two nations in your womb. That would account for it. (laughs) Meaning there's two boys that you're going to have. And one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The two kids were Jacob and Esau. Esau was not a spiritual man. He was a man of the flesh. He was a very centrally oriented guy, could care less about spiritual things. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Jacob got the birthright, and ever since then, they were at odds with each other. A hatred developed between them, an animosity that kept going on throughout their history. So that when Moses tried to take the children of Israel into the Edomite territory, the Edomites wouldn't let him go through. They came against uh, King Ahaz. Uh, they, on another time in Second Chronicles, uh, fought against one of the other kings of Israel. And when Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, it was the Edomites that helped the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. So, using the term Edom, but meaning all of the nations of the world, because it would be something that they would understand, that being the perpetual enemy, the idea is all of the enemies of the Jews that come against the people of Israel. And then verse 8, For it's the day of the Lord's vengeance. The year of recompense for the cause of Zion. There's something interesting going on in these chapters. Actually, all throughout this whole Old Testament historical period. On one hand, God fights against his people whenever they're disobedient to him. But once God's punishment serves its purpose, runs its course, and his people learn the lesson, then God fights for his people and against his people's enemies. So the idea is that the captivity in Babylon, the hassle by the Assyrians, would serve as a wake-up call for the people of God, and they would come back to him in repentance. Now that brings up a very crucial, integral question of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and on into the future. Here's the question. Did God abandon Israel because of Israel's failure in the past? Answer, no, he didn't. Some people say, oh, yes, he did. And they try to wrongly replace ethnic Israel, historical Israel, literal Israel, with what they term a new Israel. And they try to take all of the promises that are given to literal Israel that will be fulfilled in the millennium and try to apply them to the church. Paul answers the question very, very frankly in Romans chapter 11. He says, has God cast away his people? Here's his answer. God forbid. Even though God may arrange harsh punishment to bring his people back to him, they are never utterly rejected. Here's something that will help, I believe. God, throughout history, has made covenants with his people, the Jews. And even before the Jews became a people, God made covenants, deals, compacts. Some of the covenants, we call them conditional covenants. Some of them are unconditional covenants. A conditional covenant is where you have two parties and both of them do something. The conditional covenant is where God says, if you do this, I'll do that. But then there are unconditional covenants, 
where though there may be human responsibility involved, it's basically God making a proclamation saying, I am going to do that, period. So the covenant that God made in the Garden of Eden was a conditional covenant. Don't touch that tree, guys, or you're out of here. It was conditional. They failed to meet the condition. They were booted out. But God made a covenant with Abraham that was an unconditional covenant. God promised Abraham and his descendants, and then later on, Isaac and his descendants, Jacob and his descendants, a piece of real estate. The borders of Israel as a an unconditional covenant. However, as we go on through history, on Mount Sinai, when God gives the Ten Commandments, it's a conditional covenant. You say, I'm getting confused here. How does, it, how does God keep track of all these covenants with his people? Here's how it works. The tenure of Israel in the land was conditional, but the inheritance of the land was unconditional. Here's how it works. God says, as long as you're obedient, you stay in the land. If you're disobedient, you're out of here. But he says, the land is yours forever. So this is what God does. They disobey. God lets them go into captivity. They get really unhappy in captivity, and they start repenting and calling on God. God brings them back. And then they do it again. God brings them out. But God always brings them back and will one day keep perpetually the unconditional covenant with Israel forever. So God can fulfill his conditional covenant of the law and his unconditional covenant that he made with Abraham and his descendants forever. And there will be a day of recompense against the enemies of Israel, against Zion. Let's finish it out. Its stream shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land become burning pitch. Speaking of the enemies now. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. But the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl, the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion, and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there And all its princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall be a habitation of jackals, a courtyard for ostriches. A picture of total devastation. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals. The wild goat shall bleat to its companion. Also the night creature shall rest there. Find for herself a place of rest. There the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow. There shall also, there also shall the hawks be gathered, every one with her mate. Search from the book of the Lord and read, not one of these shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate, for my mouth has commanded it and his spirit has gathered them. There will be such total waste, the picture that Isaiah portrays, that each of these animals will be able to find its mate without having mankind around to interfere. The idea is that mankind will be destroyed during that period of time. He has cast lots for them, and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. 
He shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. You put all this together with the judgments that we read about in the book of Revelation, those chapters, chapter 6 through chapter 19, about the ruin that is coming upon the earth. And it should cause us to come to a conclusion. Here's a conclusion. The world as we know it is passing away. It doesn't make sense to place all of our stock into something that is only temporal. And yet, so often when we plan, we only plan for the immediate, the temporal, and we don't think about the eternal. The Apostle Peter said, Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Answer, certainly not materialistic-minded. Certainly not temporally-minded. I love what George Matheson once said, Oh God, stamp eternity on our eyeballs. May we walk out of here tonight with the eternal perspective because all of this around us isn't going to last. It's all going to burn. Literally, all going to burn. Over in Scotland, David Livingstone was raised and he went to become one of the great missionaries to Africa. After he served there, his body, after he died, was brought to London, England, and he was to be buried in Westminster Abbey, which is where his body resides today. David Livingstone gave his life for the sake of spreading the gospel. He was also a doctor and an explorer, but mainly he was a missionary spreading the gospel. At his funeral, it is said that thousands upon thousands lined the streets to watch that funeral. There was one person in the crowd who was weeping profusely. And somebody saw him and he said, you almost act like you knew the missionary. The man said, I knew the missionary, David Livingstone, well. We were classmates. We were friends. We grew up together. And he said, we both went to Africa together. But he said, David went for Africa's souls. I went for Africa's gold. And he said, I'm weeping because... Today I realize I've been concentrating on the wrong world. Misplaced values. If all of your values, all of your hope is in this world, you will be sorely disappointed. There's only one eternal hope. And that is in Christ who will rule and reign not only for a thousand years on earth, but forever in the eternal state in the kingdom. If you haven't given your heart to Christ, no better time, no better place than here, tonight. And afterwards, you're going to have an opportunity. We're going to pray. The pastors are going to come forward. And after the service, if you want prayer for any reason, you want to talk about eternal perspective and eternal things, you come and meet with one of the pastors up front. Let's all stand and we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for a great block of time in it together. Three chapters, a solid meal. And now, Lord, we're equipped with an eternal perspective to go out and serve you in this very temporal world with our eyes fixed on the eternal. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This is the end of this message. If you would like further information on any of our products or to receive our free catalog, contact the Word for Today. The address is P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. Or you may reach us by our toll-free number, 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-WORD.